in America in particular, there, especially among the younger generations, you know, the Gen Z and the millennial generation, there's this notion of, you know, I deserve something. It's a, a kind of a little bit of entitlement, right? So I, I get it, right? People work hard in their lives. They have things that they want, but the reality is you don't get to have all of those things right away. There's got to be this notion of long-term planning. And so the sooner you can get in the habit of living below your means and the more below your means you can live while still enjoying life, the better, the better you're going to be positioned, you know, for the long-term. So, you know, save money and, and not, not only saving money, but investing that money in things like the stock market and, uh, and other asset classes that will position you to be in a very good uh, situation when the economy is not doing well, giving you access to those opportunities that are going to ma manifest themselves. So here's the big question. Have you ever been so financially frustrated from years of poor financial decisions only to wonder, why didn't they teach me in school anything about how to manage money? I've spent the last 20 years learning the secrets to how money really works and how to use it to get financially free on a goal to retire early. I've realized how much of an impact we could have on the world by teaching financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and a successful mindset. Join me as I interview some of the world's most successful business owners, coaches, and parents to get them to share their secrets on how you can not only learn, but teach these lessons to your kids to become financially free and impact your children's financial trajectory so they can avoid the frustration and go on to do great things. I'm Cody Laughlin, and this is the Money Talkers Podcast. Welcome back to Money Talkers with your host, Cody Laughlin. I have Alex Chasovsky with me today. He's a, an accomplished speaker. He serves as a senior business advisor at ITR Economics, a highly experienced market researcher and analyst, he has more than a decade of expertise in subjects that include macroeconomics, industrial manufacturing, automation, and advanced technology trends. Alex has consulted and advised companies throughout the U.S., Europe, Brazil, China, and Japan for the last 15 years and been featured on NPR, the BBC, and in the Wall Street Journal. So with all of that, welcome to Money Talkers, Alex. Thanks for having me, Cody. It's great to be here. Well, I, uh, I kind of want to jump off, uh, kind of starting was we were talking a little bit offline. Um, tell me your story of coming here, uh, as a young boy and kind of walk me through how you've gotten from, from that position to where you're at now. Well, it's a, certainly an interesting story to most Americans. I was born in the former Soviet Union in a city called Kiev, which is now the capital of Ukraine. But at the time it was certainly part of the Soviet empire. Um, when I was 10 years old, my family and I decided to leave the country. This is right before communism collapsed. So we became refugees and we actually spent about a year and a half kind of gallivanting around the world. We spent some time living, living in Austria, um, another six to nine months or so living in Italy before the United States opened up its doors and welcomed us in. So we arrived in May of 1990. Our first point of, uh, of uh, kind of landing in the United States was in Dallas, Texas. Um, so, you know, that was my first true exposure to capitalism in its purest form. And I got to tell you, I, I fell in love right off the bat. You, went and, full, and you, went, you guys went full America going right into full Dallas. Full America. That's right. Full America. <laughs> cowboy hat. You're probably looking at it, go, the cowboy hats are real. Like, yeah. just <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I remember we, we got off the plane. It was uh, 11 o'clock at night. This was May 25th. 
and it's 98 degrees outside. So we weren't really sure what to make of all that, but we were still very glad to be here. So essentially, um, I had not experienced capitalism really up until that point. You know, I mean, yes, we lived in uh, Western democratic countries for a few months, but uh, we had nothing to our name. We were only allowed to bring $100 a person out of the Soviet Union. And so when we came here, we didn't speak the language. My parents, which were, who were both highly educated, but their, their work, my mother was a concert level pianist and my father was a graphic designer. So it's not exactly easy to go into those fields if you don't speak the language, as you can imagine. So, oh, so they, didn't speak, they, were, they didn't speak English at all? Yeah, none of us did. None of oh, us wow. did because as a result of being refugees, we didn't know where we were going to end up. So the oh, organization wow. uh, that was working with us, um, they, they could send you to Canada, um, all the way down to Brazil on this part of the world. You can end up in continental Europe, even in Asia at the time. This was kind of obviously a different time, but we had no idea where we were going to end up. We actually ended up winning the lottery because everybody wanted to come to America and we, we actually had the opportunity to do so. So um, what year was I, that? What? This is 1990. So 1990. right before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, it's just it's just so odd to think about, you know, like even, you know, well, I suppose 30 years ago now, yeah. we're getting, <laughs> getting yeah. a little older. But, uh, you know, you think about like just that what your statement was like, you didn't know where you were going to go. You signed up for refugee and just kind of, you know, like you said, lottery style, just you don't know where in the world you're going to end up with a family. And I just think about with my kids like right now, because I have a six and an eight year old, like if we were just kind of put on and said, Hey, where are we going to end up? We don't know. You're not going to speak the language and you're going to have a hundred bucks. It's like, whoa. Yeah. I oftentimes think about what my parents had to go through in that situation, right? Not knowing how you're going to provide for the family, you know, what, what the circumstances are going to be, how you're going to be able to integrate into society and, you know, leaving all of your family and friends behind everything you've built up over your life. And then just to say, wow, things are so bad here that we got to go anywhere else is going to be better than what, than what this is. It's just a phenomenal thought to have right yeah it's amazing because i think because i was originally as you were talking about i was thinking about as a kid what you would have thought about that and it was kind of like well we don't know where we're gonna go and i think about my kids and i'm like they probably not like it would probably be a little bit scary for them but i think they would be like it wouldn't be it would, it would be 10 times scarier as a parent i would think sure like, yeah for me it the anxiety was anxiety of it- that just <laughs> You're right. You're right. For me, wow. it was the adventure of a lifetime, right? I, yeah. mean, I, I had no cares in the world. I didn't have to worry about how to put food on the table or a roof or over, over our head or how to earn an income. But from them, you know, the experience was really, really different and I'm sure extremely stressful. So, yeah. And well, on top of that, like you couldn't show it. Right. That's so right. like I think That's about right. with my kids, like if I was in that kind of situation, like I would have to not only feel that way, have no answers when they, they would ask a million questions, I would imagine, because that's how they do, you know, they would just yeah. keep asking the same questions over trying to figure things out. But also having to show probably strength so that they feed off of that. Right. That's right. Because if that's they right. were if they were in terrible anxiety or the whole thing, like you would too, you would just feed that as a kid. You know, you and like you said it was kind of more like a you had the world in front of you and they were, you know, that that's amazing. I just sorry to interject on that part of the story. It's just I'm trying to wrap my head around the feelings that would be involved with that as an, as, as a parent. And just like you said, anywhere has got to be better than what's going on here. Yeah. And, you know, know, I mean, obviously being an immigrant to the U S myself, I I oftentimes think that that's a perspective that a lot of Americans just don't have um, a relative to the people that want to come here. Right. And, and I, I know that the United States is a melting pot and I know that, you know, we have obviously issues with our immigration system and it needs to be revised. But I, I think that this is an opportunity for me to mention that 
I truly believe that the future of America, both from an economic perspective, which is what I study, and from a social perspective, needs to be one that accommodates people coming into the country to add to the tapestry that we have here. I think it's been a long-term proven success story that we've done so in the past. We need to obviously reform the process by which we do that and make sure that it's legal and vetted and it's safe. But at the same time, we need to realize that you know, most of the time, these people are going to be contributing to the country and, and, and making all of us better off over time. So it's, it's really important for me to mention that. No, I appreciate that. And you have, uh, you have a very um, in, embedded point of view, obviously, right? Yes, and absolutely. So, <laughs> absolutely. You know, um, so, so they get here, like you said, um, you know, as a pianist and as a graphic designer, um, and then and you guys are in Dallas. So what, what, what happens? So um, my father took a job at a warehouse where they printed t-shirts. So this is like, you can imagine summertime in Texas, 100 plus degree temperature, no air conditioning in the building. He's off to work every single day printing t-shirts. My mother actually went to work at a daycare changing diapers. And, um, you know, over time, we basically built ourselves up. You know, we saved up enough to buy a car after a while. It was a 1980 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. That was the first uh, beautiful American piece of machinery that we invested <laughs> in. Um, and then, you know, now my, I look at my parents. My mom is doing private piano lessons for students. My father is definitely back in the art world. And so over the last 30 years, they've definitely clawed their way out of you know, this, this hole that we started in and became contributing members of American society. And most importantly, I think to the parents out there, they're listening, the opportunities that they were able to give my brother and I, we're, we're both highly educated, both have master's degrees. My brother is in geopolitical science. I'm working in the economics realm. You know, we, we really have um, benefited from the sacrifices that they made. And it, it, it instilled in us this notion that we need to teach our own children, the same kind of things that we learned as part of that process, which is resiliency and tenacity. And you've got to have that hunger, right? No matter what your situation is, if you are assertive and hungry and you're willing to go above and beyond and do things that other people aren't willing or able to do, that's going to position you for a lifetime of success. And so these are really core values that embody who I am today. That's fantastic. You know, it's, um, I have the fortunate position to talk to many, many high achievers, um, not just through the podcast, but throughout my life. And uh, I've, because I, I was, I learned very early that I wanted to emulate, like, emulation is probably the easiest path to success, right, for me. And so when I see, I, I, so I always wanted to kind of pick the brain or, you know, uh, follow the path of people that have had success, because I figured that would be a lot easier than me just figuring it out. Yeah. And so um, I would say that the things that come up the most are perseverance um, it, it, that, you know, and resiliency. Yeah. Right. Like the, 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 the idea that people don't, the people who have had a lot of success don't get knocked down is completely falsehood. Right. The, it's Absolutely. almost like the, the more successful I see people, it's almost like the more they've been knocked down. Right. Yeah. It's like that old Rocky line. Like you might knock me down, but like, I'll keep getting up you know, yeah, and that, that how right. many times you get up thing. And so that's a really, um, you know, I, I, I wonder, have you had conversations as an adult and they've been here 30 years and that kind of thing and asking them like, would you do it again? 
Yes, we have. Uh, and I mean, I have to, I guess, get a little personal to answer this question. You know, I, I think it took a toll on them for sure, uh, in the sense that they did end up um, getting divorced after a while when I was 30. You know, so th there was very little time to focus on the relationship when you're trying to, you know, really overcome all of these very real day to day challenges, right? So, yeah. so I think that there was some impact from that there. But uh, every time I've asked them, the answer that I get is always the same. It was absolutely worth it because we, when we look at you and your brother, you know, this is why we did that is to give you and your own children and future generations the opportunity to have a better life than what we could have given you back in the Soviet Union. So how, how courageous that is. It's absolutely a, a phenomenal. I mean, honestly, I'm the same age right now that they were when they immigrated. And, you know, if I were to do what you were describing earlier, which is to say, if somebody said you have to leave everything that you've worked for so far in your life behind, start over from nothing. And also, by the way, you don't know where you're going, how you're going to survive when you get there. It's just mind boggling to, yeah. to, try, to, to try to wrap your mind around that. So, But I mean, you know, you're taking a, so I think me personally, I think about legacy a lot of times, right? And when I'm thinking about, it, it was kind of my big why when I, when I needed to get into personal finance and I needed to change my life. And I was in this awful hole that I built for myself. And I have a, the whole story goes into it, but like, I, I kept thinking, I needed a why of how I was going to do this, right? And I kept thinking like, one day I'm going to have kids and one day I'm going to leave a legacy for them, right? And that's what they did. They, they took the pathway of the family tree and just split the thing and brought it. I mean, how courageous that is. I, yeah. I mean, that's just an amazing, that's an, that's an amazing amount of fortitude and foresight to say, we're going to do this no matter how painful it is for us, for you guys, right? That's, right. that's so that's cool. Right. And, and I think at the end of the day, as, as incredible it might seem to think about, most parents would take the same step when you, when you think about the impact that that will have on your kids, right? I mean, there are obviously going to be exceptions and people who, who can't bring themselves to make that, that change. But I think the vast majority of parents would say, look, I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice and I'm willing to do what needs to be done in order for my kids to have a better life. Uh, and so I think as, as strange as it might seem talking about it and as a uh, surreal experience as it may have been, at yeah. the end of the day, when you really sit down and think about what's important to you and, and what you want to get out of your life and your legacy, as you say, then I think mo many of us would have made a similar decision in that situation. It's just, a, you know, it's, it's a very commendable thing to kind of think about that. You know, we talk about, oh, it's 30 years. Well, the 30 years of hard work is a lot of years of hard work, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, it's, an, it's just, it's just uh, mind-blowing to me. And so I kind of segues into what, um, what I want to bring up. One of the things that as we were kind of going back and forth for you to come to the show is that you said something that really, really caught my eye which was I asked you what really gets you excited to talk about. And you're a, you're a, you know, renowned public speaker and economic speaker and all of these things. And so, but the one thing you said got you really fired up was talking about the forecasting for the 2030s, which yes. is an amazing thing to me in my brain because I'm thinking, okay, here's a chance as we're talking about this now with your parents saying, okay, I'm going to do this for my kids. And I'm, they don't know, like they didn't have any clue what, it was going to do for you. They just knew it was going to be something they thought it would be something great. Right. Yeah. And so as, as when I saw that, I thought about, wow, here's an opportunity to think about 2030s, which I don't know anybody that's talking about and then saying, okay, we're doing economic financial forecasting or future forecasting of these things. Like 
how awesome that would be able to take that forecasting and kind of bring that to the strategies that we use when we talk to our kids about what they're going to be and do and the opportunities that are going to be in front of them. So can you kind of start kind of walk me through what gets you so excited about doing that? Yeah, I think if I were to surmise it in one word, it's opportunity, right? So, so let me first kind of talk about what our expectation is. And I recognize that it's still far out there in the future, but um, at ITR Economics, we have long recognized that as a country, we are living beyond our means, right? We continue to have massive amounts of deficit spending by the government. Certainly this COVID-19 pandemic has only exacerbated that. We've taken on huge amounts of debt. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong or right to do so. I'm saying that down the road, there are going to be consequences of doing that. As you very well know, personal finances don't operate indefinitely where you're spending more money than you're making, right? And, and at some point, the rooster will come home to crow or whatever the expression <laughs> is. But um, the, the point that I want to make here is that we think that the long-term impact of all of this government debt, um, and not only at the federal level, but you know, you look at state pension liabilities and you know, the money that is uh, due to people, there's just going to be very difficult times in terms of actually paying that money. So that's one element of it. The second element of it is that the United States over the next decade is going through a fundamental demographic change in the sense that we have this major population of baby boomers that have been the driving force behind the economy, creating businesses, spending money, and they are all retiring at the rate of 10,000 people every single day for the next decade. And so the 2030s also represents a culmination in the amount of people in the ranks of retirement and the strain that those people will be placing on government resources, for example. Well, I would say too on that, just is, is, is it, so, but they're also, it used to be retire at 65, uh, but the, the average lifespan was 62, right? I think when they did social security, okay. like if you got there, it was like, oh, well you, you outlived retirement. So here's some extra cash to come in. And now it's, you know, 60, well, 62 if you want it, but 65 for retirement for, for uh, social security and those things, but people are living to 85. That's right. So and that, even, even it, when they work that makes the pool 70. much bigger. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It, it does uh, make the pool much bigger. Uh, and even the people that are working till 70 to maximize social security benefits, you know, eventually you don't see them continue to work into their 70s, right? So you're absolutely right. There's going to be, you know, it's very hard to predict the specific year or the specific month that it's all going to start to unravel. But when you think about it in response to this great strain on the entitlement programs, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, the government is essentially going to have to do two things. They're going to have to cut spending in other areas, essentially divert funds to funding those entitlement programs. And, and this is probably the most impactful from a change in behavior perspective, they're going to have to raise taxes, both individual taxes and business taxes. That's going to stymie spending across a wide swath of the American economy. It's going to stymie investment on the business perspective. And so, you know, we don't try to necessarily quantify what we do when we look out to the 2030s, realize that there's going to be a difficult economic period out there. And so the key message is not to scaremonger people, but to really make them aware now so that they have a full decade of preparation ahead of them. And then they can not only benefit from the downturn, but really grow their wealth significantly because they will have prepared and they'll be ready to pull the trigger when everybody else is running for the hills. And the reason I say that is because when we look back at 2008, 2009, 
one of the most common things I hear about is regret about not doing more to invest at the low point, right? Whether it's the stock market or real estate or you know uh, any type of business, right? Uh, acquisitions that you could perform. People look back at it and say, boy, if I know, knew then what I know now, I would have been much more aggressive at that low point. And that's what this is all about, is that recessions, even significant ones, really represent opportunities. As long as you can see it coming in advance, prepare accordingly, and then act at the right time to position yourself well to capitalize on the recovery period. That's what this is all about. So do you think that liquidity is going to be the key? I think liquidity is absolutely going to be the key. And, and some of the advice that we're giving people, you know, especially people that are business owners, for example, is you know, look to sell the business in anticipation of that downturn, get high valuation for your life's work, right? And then leverage the proceeds from that sale as cash to invest at the low point in the cycle. We joke around, you find somebody you don't like very much, sell them the business, then kind of sit back and watch them squirm and, you know, offer to buy it at 50% off, you know, three years later. But uh, that's obviously neither here nor there. But, but I think you're absolutely right. It's certainly a preparation and a liquidity uh, conversation. And, and so with that in mind, we've actually gotten um, some, some specific pieces of advice of what we would tell young people and specifically the kids of today that are going to be the adults of tomorrow in terms of what they should be doing uh, as far as preparing for that downturn to maximize the opportunities that they're going to have during that low point to invest for their own wealth creation in the future. So, so I'm happy to run through. Yeah, something. absolutely. I want to run through those because one of the things that has very much helped me throughout the years in the business realm and the business world is, uh, is I have a saying that if I know the rules, I can play the game. Yeah. It's when I don't know the rules, it's very difficult to play the game. And so that doesn't change the game, right? <laughs> if, if we're going to be looking at these modelings and we say, okay, like you said, you have time A, to prepare, but B, to learn the rules and where the opportunities are going to be. So I would love right. to be able to go through the things that you all recommend uh, for young people to be able to do, because I think as a family unit, being able to plan and have some insight is uh is a tremendous advantage yes. because the masses will not you know it's and so Agreed. it's the ones that are willing to have the information and act upon it are going to be the ones that, that reap the rewards of the opportunities that are going to come through and so um as i always believe lucky is when preparation meets opportunity That's and right. so the opportunities will come but this is an this is kind of a lesson on what the preparation should be from from your from y'all's company yeah. So the things that we're basically trying to convey are, are very reasonable. They're, they're logical, but I think surprisingly, not a lot of people actually practice these things. It's just so, like personal finance. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I think at the very top of the list for me, and, and this is very much based on my own experience growing up and, and trying to position myself for future success is living below your means. Like you, that, that has got to be instilled in our uh, younger people very much so. I think that in America in particular, there, especially among the younger generations, you know, the Gen Z and the millennial generation, there's this notion of, you know, I deserve something. This is a kind of a little bit of entitlement, right? So I, I get it, right? People work hard in their lives. They have things that they want, but the reality is you don't get to have 
all of those things right away. There's got to be this notion of long-term planning. And so the sooner you can get in the habit of living below your means, and the more below your means you can live while still enjoying life, the better, the better you're going to be positioned, you know, for the long-term. So, you know, save money and, and not, not only saving money, but investing that money in things like the stock market and, uh, and other asset classes that will position you to be in a very good uh, situation when the economy is not doing well, giving you access to those opportunities that are going to ma manifest themselves. I think that has to be first and foremost. So uh, the, the, the younger we can teach our, our children to live below their means and to save and invest, the better off they're going to be down the road. Yeah, I think a good way to say that too is that um, with, in, in American culture, we, we push selling your future time, right? So we sell credit like it's nobody's business. And so you're selling your future work, but you're going to have to work one and a half times more than you would have to work now to pay for things. That's right. Right. And so, because somebody else has got to get paid on top of what you're borrowing. Yeah, <laughs> and so exactly, exactly. that, that, that's a huge uh, point. And the fact of living below your means is also, you know, to me is mastering credit. Right. And debt. And so if you don't, one of my biggest goals for money talkers, is that young people learn the things that I didn't learn until my, I was 30 years old and was way in the hole from what I needed to be at. Right. And so that part of it is, you know, paying for cash. If you have the ability to pay for cash, what does it say? If you can't pay cash for it, you can't afford it. Right. I think that's a very, very astute observation. You know, I think it goes along with this notion of understanding that there is this compounding interest that you can also take great advantage of if you have the cash, yes. right? Because you can build tremendous amounts of money over time by investing relatively affordable amounts today, right? So, so Absolutely. It's this, this, this time value of money consideration. Especially with young kids. I mean, when you start looking at timelines of 50, 60, 70 years, that's it right. takes very few dollars to generate very big outcomes. That's correct. You know? And so that habit building piece that you talked about is one of the most important things we can do. Yeah. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I think the, the more you can live be below your means, the better. But I think a, a good rule of thumb, somewhere 10 to 15% of your income, you should be able to save that. If you start doing that early on, it's not even going to feel like you're cutting it out because it's going to be hopefully removed right from your paycheck before you see the money and you can invest that money over long term. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at that as like, uh, I'm something that I'm taking away, but it's not. It's something that you're building fast, you know, and it's, yeah. that's, it's building, not taking away. You're gifting it to your future self yeah. and you will thank yourself <laughs> when, when you get there. So I think that's number one. The second thing that I would say um, is summed up by this, which is learn a second language. And it, it's both direct in its implication. So I think it's very helpful and increases your value tremendously to a potential hiring organization in the future. If you speak, let's say Spanish or French or even Mandarin Chinese, right? Because during a period of crisis, the people with more skills are going to be valued higher than people with less skills. But there's also a less literal interpretation of that in the sense that maybe that second language is programming. Maybe it's uh, a a, a different skill that doesn't directly tie to a foreign language, but rather creates this value proposition for yourself that other people won't have, positioning you head and shoulders above the rest of the competition. So the notion here is essentially never stop challenging yourself to grow and to gain insight and wisdom and experience, no matter what your age is, but certainly the earlier you start down that path, the better off you're going to be down the future. So being that you guys are forecasting, 
right? And we're looking at investment and, and as a, as a analyst and those kind of things, what language would you learn? So we had this debate at my house. Uh, I personally took Latin in high school and in college thinking I was going to go pre-med originally. But of course, learning a dead language is not going to be all that useful for you. So I would not recommend going down the Latin course. Um, in my family, we um, obviously have a little bit of a propensity for Russian, but I, I've also tempered my kids' expectations in terms of the usability and the, and the efficacy of that. Uh, so when we look at specifically the US, the demographic change that we're going through, I think in my personal opinion, and this is the decision that we've made for our family, Spanish is, I think, the most practical language. Now, if you want to lean more internationally, French is a really good solid basis for many languages around the world, including for much of the African continent, which we think long-term has a lot of tremendous growth opportunities. Um, if you are, you know, obviously looking towards the Far East and Mandarin Chinese, it's a very difficult language, but certainly would allow you to communicate with several billion people on the other side of the planet but for us the choice is clear and it's spanish yeah there's a uh, i think where we're at in the part of the world that there is a uh, and there's a large i think that's the most spoken language right that's the between english and spanish right that's probably the two that you can have the most fluidity i would think to where you go yes i think so i think so so that's the second thing the third thing that we're recommending is that as you look down the road in terms of your careers you should have multiple and diverse income streams coming into your household. What we're talking about here is basically diversification of in income. You don't want to have all your eggs in a single basket. I, I joke and say, you know, feel as, as a young person, feel free to date someone in your office, but don't marry that person. Look for someone in a different field than, than you're in because you want that diversification of income. Therefore, if you have, you know, a difficult period in the economy and one of you loses their job, then you have um, some some backup plan, right? And and it really uh, alludes to the career that you choose needs to be focused on the areas of opportunity. What I mean by that are things like healthcare and technology and education. These are things that are in great demand, regardless of what's going on in the economy. I think it's uh, incredible to me that people go to college these days, take on $100,000 worth of debt, and then get a liberal arts degree, right? Which doesn't position themselves to really capitalize very much on that uh, on that education. It's certainly a pursuit of their passion. And I'm not by any means trying to discourage people from pursuing their passions. Just don't do it in a way that's going to dig you into the one of, one of the biggest financial holes of your life. For me personally, um, when I graduated uh, high school, I had offers from many Ivy League schools and, and my top choice was Columbia, but Columbia only offered me a half ride and that still meant $25,000 a year, which I could not afford at the time. So I ended up going to University of Texas at Austin on a full scholarship. Um, and, and then even at that point, there's still some, uh, some argument to be made for taking the first couple of years at a community college, get those base classes out of the way, live at home, save some money. I know it doesn't, isn't very conducive to that party scene that most young people are seeking, but certainly from a financial obligation perspective, especially if your family is not well off and cannot just pay for your college education, which means you have to take on debt, you've got to try to minimize that debt. And when you are going to school, 
get a degree in something that's going to pay you back for it. You know, I, I, I love the idea of business administration, well-rounded, lots of different exposure to fields, you know, but you're, you're talking about programming, healthcare, lots of different choices that you just have to be smart about how you pursue that education so that you make sure that it actually is a benefit to you long-term rather than this great dead weight that's dragging you for the first 10 or 20 years of your life as you try to pay off that student debt. What's amazing now, like, uh, is they have they have um, kids that are graduating high school with AAs, you know, because they're they're integrating these college courses into their and so because I was there, we used to have like right. AP and those things. Yep. And uh, now it's like they have entire courseworks inside of some of the high schools, and so uh, that's a. I mean, if you can cut two years out of a hundred thousand dollar cost, I mean, you're talking fifty grand. Yep. That's a whole lot easier to swallow. Plus, if you wanted to go into master's and things, you're coming out at 22 instead of 26 or 25, right. you know, and that right. adds three or four years of earnings to pay for that in the first it's place. Huge. It's yeah. absolutely huge. Yeah. So you got you to gotta be smart about how you get that education. You've got to certainly think about the cost involved versus the benefit and really make sure that it is a long-term uh, accretive to your goals in life rather than something that's going to be a headwind to you. Uh, especially during those formative years in your um, 20s and, and early 30s, as you build your family, you know, as you look to become a property owner, which I, I think there's a little bit of misconception there, because I think the younger generation, especially the millennials, now that they're getting into their early 30s and, and mid 30s, they are getting married, they're having children, they want a house for their kid and their dog to have a yard to play in. And so those are all still very much part of that American dream that, that you've got to be thinking about longer term. So yeah, it just the, seems like they got pushed back farther. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. For those guys, especially, and, and, and many reasons, not only because they came out right in the aftermath of the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, but because they were saddled with debt and they focused on paying down those student loans so they couldn't build up a down payment for a house for, for a, an extended period of time. So the, the next point that I'll make, I think, applies really, really importantly, and, and you, you touched on this earlier, the notion is try to pay off as much debt as you possibly can before the 2030s get here. And, and I don't just mean you know, high interest credit card debt here. If you can buy your cars with cash, as you mentioned earlier, if you can pay off your student loans, if you can make sure that you know, you're saving in advance instead of taking on debt, whether it's credit card or conventional loan type of debt, the less liabilities you have, the less you're likely to get creditors hounding you during the 2030s and the better off you're gonna be able to sleep at night. So it's a very practical, very logical approach, but I think people tend to think about, okay, I don't want credit card debt, but all debt, you know, student loans, auto payments, even mortgages, if you're in a position where you're in your kind of peak earning years, your 30s and 40s, put those extra payments towards your mortgage. You know, Make sure you're leveraging the low, low interest rate environment right now to refinance. I just managed to lock in a 30-year note for 2.75%. You know, So it, it's, it's an opportunity that is going to pay dividends for decades to come. And yet people often say, well, I'm just too busy to fill out the paperwork and go through that process. And they're not taking it. There's tens of millions of American homeowners that could potentially benefit from a refi right now, and they're just not taking advantage of it. So that's certainly a part of the conversation as well. Yeah, borrowing money at 2.75% is insane. <laughs> it is. It it's is. just it's just amazing. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more on that. The day, uh, it just blows my mind where we're at on that. Um, I have a question for you as we're going through this, though. Uh, so when we're in 2030, and we're talking about those things where we're going to see taxes, 
or increase have to, or reshifting of funds somewhere. Um, do you see deflation or inflation coming? Because they may go to the printing presses, right? And then hammer that down and flood the thing with cash like we are now, which makes all of our dollars buy a whole lot less stuff. Yes. Or we go and we tax and we pull and we, you know, we get the money from ourselves basically, but that causes, you know, economic crashing, you know, which is a deflation, which means your dollar buys more, but there's a whole lot less dollars for everybody. Yeah. So our opinion is in, in particular in the second half of the 2020s, we should see quite a bit of upward inflationary pressure. It's, it deals with resource scarcity, but also with this notion that's becoming more and more, I think, accepted, which is this concept of modern monetary theory, where we can just print our way out of the, the, the debt problem, right? Because we're not actually paying down the national debt, we're paying the interest only portion of that national debt. And we can continue to do so essentially indefinitely by continuing to manifest money out of thin air, which I find to be probably the most fascinating, but also the most opposing notion to capitalism, which is this idea that, you know, this seven plus trillion dollars that we've allocated to fight the pandemic right now, where did that money come from? Is that money even real? Or is it just a bunch of zeros and ones on a spreadsheet somewhere that's housed in a Fed server, right? It's, it's just this fascinating idea that then starts to say, well, at what point do we stop doing that? And, and yeah. I really don't have an answer to that question. I also wonder, you know, uh, because in a debt, a debt, I've never thought of this out, but like in a debtor lender situation, the majority of our debt is held by the Federal Reserve. Like, you know, do you go through a you know, a, a, a loan reduction, <laughs> you know, like, cause, and cause like you said, it's just kind of digital money at that point, That's right. but the ramifications of that would be immense worldwide. And it's just, uh, it's just a, it's a crazy subject to think about, but it is, it is. Um, There's a couple of interesting points there. So uh, one is this misconception that exists that um, a lot of other foreign countries are the majority holders of our debt. That's simply not true. Now, now China and Japan, for example, they do hold sizable loads of U.S. treasuries, about a trillion dollar each plus or minus, but that's still less than 10%. It's about 5% of the total, you know? So the vast majority, as you, as you alluded to, is held by a combination of other U.S. government agencies and U.S. investors, whether that's institutional or private investors. So one of the things that we have going for us that I think actually positions the U.S. to be better off in the long term than some of the other countries around the world, especially when you compare us to the Europeans, is that at least our debt is in our own currency, which we have the ability to print more of. If you think about Germany or the or, or uh, you know France or Spain, for example, their debt is in euros, which they have no control over, and so that situation is a lot more dicey when it comes to okay, what happens down the road? For us, we are still in relative control over that debt, whereas they are relying on the European Central Bank um, to, to kind of guide that policy. And so they're a little bit at the mercy of that institution. So some really interesting ramifications of that. But I think going back to our original talking yeah. point of what this all means is over the next 10 years, live beyond, below your means, invest part of that money, use the rest of it to really pay down those debts because the less debt you own, the better off you're gonna be able to sleep at night and the more opportunity you have to invest at that low point whenever it does come in the 2030s. And then uh, I think that's, I think the very last point that I'll make is uh, going back to the comment I made earlier about recessions being times of opportunity, right? A lot of times when you read about it on 
uh, online or hear about it in the media, there's this really negative connotation to the term recession. It, it, people tend to go into panic mode, you know, they kind of fearful of it, a lot of anxiety. But for me, uh, and having seen the impact, especially the aftermath of multiple recessions in the US now, I can tell you that I always do the exact opposite. And in, in that sense, I, I believe I'm a contrarian in the sense that I look forward to those downturns because my investment horizon is still relatively long for many young parents and even, certainly the children, as we alluded to, 60 or 70 year investment horizon, you should be looking at every recession opportunity as a great chance to build your wealth down the road. And so when the time does come, and we have certain tools that can help track when the low point is actually likely to happen, we can certainly say, all right, at that point, you've got to be aggressive. You've got to invest. Even though most people around you will be running for the hills, they're not going to be thinking in terms of the opportunities. That's exactly how you get ahead. That's how you build that wealth is by investing at that low point. And you said you have tools for that. And where is that? ITR? Yeah, ITR Economics. So um, I, I certainly recommend that your listeners check out our website in general. It, it is geared primarily towards businesses and companies, but we have some really great tools on there that are geared at individual investors. In particular, uh, the subject that we've been discussing today is summarized quite nicely in a book that the two brothers that own the business, Alan and Brian Bolio, they wrote this book about five years ago. They're currently working on a follow-up. It's talking about everything leading up to that downturn in the 2030s and then most importantly giving people recommendations of what they should be doing to prepare that are more detailed the book is called prosperity in the age of decline you can buy it on our website itreconomics.com you can buy it on amazon so i think from a personal finances perspective i actually read that book before i joined the firm five years ago and really? i found it to be quite compelling so it's really interesting take it gives you some ideas of the kind of data that you should be tracking to, to kind of see what the signals are uh, that the thing is coming sooner rather than later uh, and then gives you some specific advice of how you should react to when you see it unfolding. Yeah, I think that um, we just went through the most uh, pronounced economic cycle in the fastest amount of time ever, right? Especially on the stock market wise, anyway. I think we have yeah. a lot to deal with in a year from now, but um, depending on government and all that fun stuff. But uh, if you could buy all the stock you could buy the month of March, you would put every penny you had when the stock market was crashing because it's come all the way back and then some. And right. so people have made millions this year that, Absolutely. you know, and that's because they were, were capable and able and willing to buy in the downturn. Well, and especially when you look at the propensity of young people to invest in the companies that they typically invest in, right? The Teslas and the, uh, the Amazon and all the e-commerce driven high tech companies, they've gotten outsized investment returns relative to what the general marketplace has done. So uh, the, just a reminder, those types of downturns, you know, 25, 33% contractions in the S&P, they happen on a fairly regular basis. So if you look at Every single time we've come out of it. Now, sometimes it takes a little bit longer. Sometimes it takes shorter. Certainly, this you're absolutely correct. The kind of turnaround that yeah, we've this year is, is insane. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> amazing. But yeah. that it really alludes to that notion that I said is that the low points are yeah. opportunities rather than something to fear. And you should be looking to capitalize on those opportunities. 
Yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a fantastic point. You know, more more wealth has been created in recessions than it has through bull markets, and so right. um, it's because it's where you come into the position. But uh, Alex, I want to say uh, thank you so much, man, for pulling the curtain back and and having this discussion because I think it's an extremely important conversation to have with your kids when you're talking about you know just in general of where they want to go you know, uh, in, in life, what they want to do, because there's always an opportunity in any field, you know, out there, there's, un, there's an unlimited amount of types of jobs out there. But uh, I think the ability to say, hey, let's future cast. And I always feel even with like business planning and those kinds of things, like any plan is better than no plan. Right. So at least yes. you're educating yourself. And at least you're, you're saying, okay, look, if 2030, this happens, we have you know, a whole bunch of inflation, but what are, what is the future going to look like? Let's just talk about that a little bit and position ourselves. Go. If you're doing that, you're making steps in the right direction and you just have to start taking some steps, right? You do. Uh, One of my favorite quotes is from Benjamin Franklin and it's uh, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And I think that really sums it up what you were trying to communicate in a very nice condensed package there. But uh, I absolutely think that the key thing, and, and this is what your show is all about is having those conversations, challenging the status quo, encouraging the younger generations and, and us t- ourselves too, to remain educated, to continue improving and to learn. And, and that's what's really going to make the difference as we go into the future. Well, that's awesome, man. Um, I'm going to, uh, if you, if you want to see some of these tools and things, itreconomics.com. Um, is a place to find them uh, to kind of dig through. But again, um, it's having the conversations and beginning to learn and listen and take intentional listening is going to be is going to have a huge ramification. So uh, thank you, Alex, for coming on Money Talkers. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Corey. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Money Talkers with me, your host, Cody Laughlin. If you found this episode helpful in your pursuit of financial dominance, it really helps if you make sure to leave a five-star rating and share it with your friends or family members who could use good financial information and entrepreneurial success tips. I invite you to join the Money Talkers Community Facebook group. Open Facebook and search for Money Talkers to join today. Follow us on Instagram at the Money Talkers for inspirational mindset posts, encouragement, and investing tips. And remember, the one thing you can do to change your kids financial future is to start talking about money with them because you are a money talker